Hi, this is Jim Menick, and welcome back to Nostrum. For those of you who aren't aware of it, Nostrum is located at www.jimmenick.com slash podcasts. And if you're in the debate universe, you might find some other stuff there that might be of interest to you as well. In our last episode, you'll remember that Hamlet P. Buglaroni was introduced, getting on the bus at Night and Day High School. We also met his teammates, the Tarleton Twins, Frick and Frank, and Camellia Maru. In the subsequent episode, we met Jasmine Maru, Camellia's sister. And we also met Tarnas Jutmal, who is the coach of the night and day team. We also got a glimpse of Had Fleece All-American, and got a sense that Jasmine wanted to get more than just a glimpse of Had Fleece, captain of the Toulouse-Lautrec team. Because Nostrum is a pretty complicated story, it probably makes sense that we do give a little recap at the beginning of each episode. We had thought that we were going to come out on Wednesdays. The old saying was, if this is Nostrum, it must be Wednesday. Because back in the old days when the episodes were being written, they all came out on Wednesdays. But since the episodes already are written, uh, there's really nothing stopping us from getting them out except recording them, and, well, we'll try to do it as quickly as we can. We don't promise to do more than one a week, but there's no expectation that they're only going to come out on Wednesday. Maybe one a week, maybe two a week. We'll just see as time goes by. Anyhow, welcome to Nostrum, the debate soap opera, where deontology is more than just an idea, it's a rebuttal, by Jules O'Shaughnessy and the Nostrumite, narrated by Jim Menick. Episode 3. Things to do in Denver when you're just feeling a little sickly. Tarnished Jutmal is making his first circuit of the morning. Before the day is out, he will have made this trip 20 or 30 times. Jutmal is a small man, barely five feet tall, with a white goatee below a wild range of similarly white hair on his little skull. One long, white eyebrow stretches the entire ridge above his dark, probing eyes. He inevitably seems to have just come indoors from a windstorm, and one might mistake him for a tiny wizard or a large elf if one is partial to fantasy universes. His main anchor to reality is his bow-leggedness, his knees seemingly far enough apart to allow the passage between them of a pair of Siamese twin toddlers clutching black-market tickle-me-elmo dolls. One imagine that it hurts him to take even the tiniest step, and that appearance is not deceiving. Ever since the accident... But Jutmal doesn't think about the accident. He can't, and he won't. The first stop on his circuit this morning is the tournament's judges' lounge. At every tournament, a room is set aside where the judges can congregate away from the hoy and the polloi of the debaters. The judges are a varied lot. Some of them are coaches... Some of them are college students who are former high school debaters themselves. Many of them are parents hoodwinked into coming by their fast-talking children. In the lounge, they read or sleep or gossip, punctuated by drinking coffee and eating junk food supplied by the host school's parents. Some schools in the circuit are legendary for their luckland banquets mixing the finest delicacies of land and sea and air, expertly prepared and served at the peak of parental perfection to the thankful throngs of the hard-working judges. 
Other schools content themselves with irregular runs to Dunkin' Donuts or the opening of an occasional bag of taco chips and a jar of A.M.P. house brand salsa. On the debate circuit, hospitality is a variable commodity. The judge's lounge at Andrew Johnson is a tiny alcove off the main cafeteria, barely worthy of the name room, much less lounge. Presumably this is where the teachers eat during regular school hours. There are three tables and a dozen or so hard chairs comprising the entire setup. When Jutmal enters, a handful of college students are sitting at one of the tables, laughing and talking and drinking coffee. He doesn't recognize any of them, which is unusual. At another table, a tray of bagels and plastic containers of flavored cream cheeses, this morning's graciousness, are spread out next to a giant coffee urn. At the last table sits one lone, bedraggled parent staring blankly at the cup of coffee in front of him. Jutmal nods at the parent, whose face is moderately familiar but with no name attached, and crabs his way to the coffee urn, where he pours himself his fourth cup of the day. This level of consumption would stunt his growth if he were expecting any. Fortunately, he stopped growing fifty years ago. Good morning, Tarnish. The voice is broad and beaming and unmistakable. Good morning, Seth, Jutmal says, turning around. Seth B. Obamash towers over Tarnish Jutmal. Obamash is easily six and a half feet tall, and Jutmal wouldn't even venture a guess how much he weighs, but it is safe to say that the trip around him is equally long in any direction. Obamash's skin is nearly as dark as the coffee in Jutmal's plastic cup, making him nearly a black opposite of the littler man's milky pallor. Have a good night? Obamash asks as he moves to the coffee urn. He's already got three sugared donuts clenched in his gargantuan left hand, the traditional light Obamashian breakfast. As well as can be expected, Jutmal replies. At the O'Connell Lodge? Jutmal nods. You too? Obamash shakes his head and smiles enigmatically. I've got other places to stay. He blows on his coffee and takes his tentative sip. Usually do, yeah with a salacious wink and a bite of the donut that leaves a dusting of confectioner's sugar on his lips. Jutmal, not quite sure of his meaning, simply nods and walks out of the judge's lounge. Obamash, a history teacher who is the debate coach at Vale of Ignorance Catholic High School, is the Grand High Poobah of Jutmal's region's division of the National Forensic League. In the three years since his taking on this responsibility, Jutmal has convinced himself that Obamash has mistakenly ventured into the wrong NFL, and that no one has had the courage to point this out to him for fear of being punted over the nearest goalpost, which pusillanimity includes Jutmal as well. Oh well, there is room in forensics for everyone, Jutmal consoles himself. Jutmal propels his bow legs in their shuffling gait to the room next door to the judge's lounge, the main cafeteria. He stands there for a minute, observing through the open doorway. This is the staging area for the participants in the tournament, nearly 200 strong for this particular event. They are still pouring in from their night's housing, and the early hour keeps them from attaining their usual high decibel level. During the day, they will always return here from their rounds, to complain about their opponents and their judges, to listen to their eternal walkmen and discmen, to play games and gossip, and even once in a while attempt some homework. A few of the more energetic ones might slip outside to toss a frisbee, while a few similarly energetic but less politic will toss a similar frisbee without bothering to leave the building, until sooner or later they bean one of the coaches. His eye quickly catches his own team's table. 
At tournaments, every team quickly establishes its own turf and holds it closely for the duration. Often there are more teenage bottoms than chairs to hold them, and raids and set twos are not an unfamiliar sight. Over the space of two days, the tables slowly encrust with the residue of meals and snacks and mayhem, and few, if any, are the students who even notice it, much less think to toss it away. At the night and day table, the three varsity members of Jump Mall's Lincoln-Douglas team, other than Jasmine, are looking in their case folders, going over their presentations. There are two kinds of debate. Policy debate, those people with the sheep-sized tubs, pits two-person teams against each other arguing a proposition of U.S. policy. Lincoln-Douglas debaters go at it mano a mano, arguing resolutions that are usually of a philosophic nature. The difference between the two is dramatic, and the expressed politics between their supporters can be hellish. Night and day, a rather small school in the general scheme of these things, has only LD debaters, plus a contingent of speech participants. Perhaps the only thing policy and LD supporters agree on is that they resemble each other more than they resemble species. There are no speech events at the Andrew Johnson Reconstruction Memorial, usually only college host tournaments large enough to support the entire panoply of forensics. So none of Night and Day's speeches are here today, which to tarnish Jutmal simply means that there are fewer thorns in his side today than some other days, but he is in no way thorn-free. Excuse me, but you look like you actually know something. The woman plants herself squarely in front of Jutmal. I do know something, he replies. He nods and attempts to take a step away from her. I need to know where to sign up my team, she demands. I even know that, he says. He has already identified the woman as the worst of all possible debate adults, a parent on a mission. What school are you from, he asks her. Bissonne Technical. I'm Mrs. Nutmilk. When this brings no recognition, she adds, Amnia Nutmilk, Chesney's mother, Chesney Nutmilk. Her voice underlines those last two words, Chesney Nutmilk. Chesney Nutmilk. Jet Mall certainly knows him. He was a top junior last year, but disappeared out of sight over the summer, the rumor being that he had moved to a school with no debate team. The mystery is now solved, the answer being Bissonnet Technical. Obviously, Mother Nutmilk has taken matters into her own hands, and taking matters into her own hands appears to be something at which she excels. She is not tall, but she is solid, and her voice sounds as if it would slice cheese at twenty paces. Her hair is her most remarkable feature, thick and tangled like the gnarled roots of an old maple, sticking out from the sides of her head in a pippy long-stocking approach but without the braids, and there is something about it that suggests to Jutmal that once upon a time it might even have been attractive in a perverse sort of way. But now it's fifteen or twenty years past its prime. In fact, everything about Amnia Nutmilk says to tarnish Jutmal that in a perverse sort of way it's fifteen or twenty years past its prime. At thirty years past his own prime, Jutmal finds that rather intriguing. Too bad the packaging belies the contents, he thinks. Registration is upstairs in front of the library. He points up at the ceiling. Right above us now. You'll find it easily enough. Without a thank you, she spins around and marches out of the cafeteria. As she exits the door, she snaps her fingers, and Jutmal gets a sudden glimpse of poor Chesney Nutmilk, who apparently was talking to some friends outside the cafeteria. He's now been summoned, and answer that summons he shall, at the risk of life and limb. Chesney Nutmilk has definitely become poor Chesney Nutmilk, definitely and officially. 
Jutmal shakes his head and walks over to his team's table. Good morning, Mr. Jutmal. His students greet him almost in unison. Good morning, he says, sitting down with his coffee. The novices should be here soon. Toulouse-Lautrec just arrived. They all mumble something and return to their notebooks. Pre-round jitters. They're not really working on their cases so much as pushing themselves into the competitive zone, putting out of their minds the miserable night's sleep they've just fought through, the bad ziti dinner the night before, the half-eaten bagel this morning. They've got to enter a different universe now, and they're using this time to phase into it, and that's the way it should be. Jutmal has his eye on the door, and now he sees Jasmine walking in with her sister in tow, followed by the two Tarleton twins, whom he has dubbed in his mind the future industrialist of America. Frick and Frank Tarleton. The two boys look so much alike in their identical gray suits that Jutmal hasn't a hint of how to distinguish between them. So far, he hasn't tried. Certainly someday they'll be able to buy and sell him. Maybe they already can. Behind them comes the inimitable Buglaroni his shirt tail already half on the ascendant, his pants far enough away from his shoes to require a treaty if they're ever going to get together, his red baseball cap cutting off circulation to his brain, forcing it to send all the wrong messages to his hormone centers. Every class, every year, has a buglaroni, but not usually as buglaroni-ish as this one. Even across the room his tie blares out, pink and white and... No, it's somebody's picture... Star Trek. Captain Somebody's Star Trek. Tarnished Jutmal sighs. L.D. schematics, a voice calls from across the room. The reaction is instantaneous. Ninety-two varsity L.D.ers jump out of their chairs and go running in the direction of the caller. The schematics are the listing of who's debating whom in the next round, just released from the tabulators of the tournament. Is that us, Buglaroni asks? Not yet, Jutmal answers distractedly. When are we up? Not for a little while yet, I'll let you know. I didn't have much time to work on my cases, Buglaroni admits. Tarnas Chutmall is not surprised. But you do have cases of some sort, don't you? Buglaroni nods. Want to hear them? I pretty much had to do them on the bus. Camelia Maru is sitting on the other side of the table, staring into her lap. Chutmall has decided that she must be one of the shyest people he has ever seen. No wonder her sister is so protective of her. Frick and Frank Tarleton are still standing with baffled expressions on their faces, watching the horde across the room digging into the schematics. Wait till the varsity leaves, then you can read them to me, Jutmal says to Buglaroni. As the night and day varsity debaters return, three of them grab their bags and head off. Only Jasmine remains. LD rounds are broken down into two flights, which is another way of saying the rounds are doubled up so that they can use the same judge twice in a row. Jasmine is in the second flight. She takes the chair between her sister and Buglaroni. The last of the debaters heading off for the first flight are disappearing out the doorway when tarnished Jutmal sees someone totally unexpected entering the room. Make that two totally unexpected people entering the room. Humph, he humphs, sitting back in his chair and staring up at them as they approach. Jasmine notices the change in his posture and she turns around to see what's happening. Her little gasp is as surprised as his little humph. Good morning, everybody, Cartier Diamond says, and then she smiles. What are you doing here? Chutmal asks. I was in the neighborhood, so I thought I'd drop in. She looks over at the Tarleton twins. Hi, Frick. Hi, Frank. They stare back at her without responding. Chutmal is not surprised that their tongues are not up to the task of addressing Cartier Diamond this early in the morning. 
They are probably shocked that she even knows their names, although that doesn't surprise Jutmal. He imagines that there isn't a male between 9 and 33 that Cartier can't identify from a single hair follicle. She is dressed in black, as she usually is. Black shirt, black blazer, black pants, black boots. Actually classy in a way, he has to admit that. Her blonde hair is shoulder length and she's wearing sunglasses. She is tall enough and pretty enough to be a model. And Jutmal often gets the impression that she is only pretending to be a high school student to bring back notes from the field. She is a senior. And she is on his speech team. And she has no reason to be here today except to make trouble. As proof of that, her escort, who has yet to say a word and who is standing behind her, as he usually does, is none other than Mordred Prentice, a sophomore who has been following Cartier around probably since birth. Her familiar, as Jutmal has come to think of him, he is chubby and short and unattractive, similarly dressed in black from head to foot, with only his red face to provide any color. Would you get me a cup of coffee like a good love, please? Cartier asked Mordred as she slinks down into a chair. He is off like a shot toward the breakfast table in the center of the cafeteria. Three sweet and lows, she calls out to his retreating back. Three sweet and lows, he echoes in a dry cackle. And so, Cartier asked, turning to Jutmal, when do the games begin? Will Mordred Prentice bring back the right number of sweet and lows? Will Seth B. Obamash go back for more donuts? Will Chesney Milknut admit that Amnia is his mother? Will Buglaroni turn out to have the best cases tarnished Jutmaw has ever heard? Will eight-track tapes replace LPs? As usual, the answers will be hard to come by in our next episode, A Fistful of Gherkins.